For our Old Testament reading this morning, we will read two passages out of the the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus 12, the whole chapter, 1 through 8, and then Leviticus 15, 19 through 24. And our text for the the sermon will be Leviticus 12, but very much um, uh, in light of of chapter 15 there also. Uh, So, hear the word of the Lord, Leviticus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb... Then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Then turning over to chapter 15, starting with verse 19 there. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything on which she she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash her clothes and bathe himself in uh, water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Please turn with me now for our New Testament reading to a fulfillment of our passage. Uh, The new mother, we just celebrated a new mother uh, with with Christmas as as we celebrated the birth of Christ. And so Mary, Mary herself needed to keep this law that we just read there in Leviticus 12. So we'll mention that more in the sermon, but uh, we'll read there Leviticus 12. Uh, Luke, sorry, Luke chapter 2, and the portion that doesn't get read as much after, after there, the birth narrative. And so starting in, uh, in verse 21. So Luke chapter 2, verse 21, 
through 40. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they went, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. There's a book that is about the Old Testament narratives that has a title, He Gave Us Stories. And it's a helpful little phrase because it captures why we have the Old Testament narratives. They're for us. They were for Israel. They were for them to tell their children, for them to recount to themselves the wonderful deeds of their God and thereby to know about him. And they're also for us. They're also for us so that we will know, so that we can tell our children. Well, we could write another book and say, he gave us laws. Now, Most people like stories a little bit more than laws, Um, especially maybe a law like Leviticus 12. Uh, We appreciate some laws more than others. We have the Ten Commandments, the the moral law as we see it, dealing with right and wrong. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's something we try to keep before ourselves. And, uh, And they're easy to see what they are and how they apply. But then there's what we call the ceremonial laws. All of these rituals, washings, sacrifices, 
And we know we don't need to keep them anymore. We're, we're not even allowed to keep them anymore. They came to an end with Christ. And so why do we need to know them? This law about this new mother, what are we to do with it? How are we to understand it? Well, as we, as we think on these laws, for Israel, they shaped their lives. They controlled what they ate, who they married, where they would go, what they would touch, and how they would interact with the world around them. In one sense, these laws, these ceremonial laws, they were more important to an Israelite than all those stories because they were the stuff of everyday life. But what was their purpose? Well, I would argue that they were a teaching tool. As the law, as the narratives taught Israel, these, these laws also were to teach Israel. But they were, they were this, this teaching tool that was lived out every day in their experiences, in the choices that they made. God gave these ceremonial laws to Israel to teach them about himself, about Israel's relationship with him. And even though we don't need to keep them, where we are not allowed to keep them because Christ has fulfilled them all, we still should not ignore them because they can still teach us. They have lessons for us also. What God was teaching Israel, we need to learn. And I would argue, too, it's, it's a helpful thing for us to pay attention to because if it's that important for Israel in their everyday life, we can expect that it probably permeates much of the text, that we actually become better readers of the Bible as we know our laws. Uh, and so as we saw even in this New Testament reading, as we think of the birth of Jesus and everything that goes with that, we see that Mary needed to keep this law. We understand more of what it's alluding to uh, as we see it. But having said all that, we we read Leviticus 12, and in many ways we don't know what to do with it. Its strangeness strikes us. Maybe it even offends us. A woman, she gives birth, this miraculous thing, this thing with a lot of labor and intensity, and, and then it says she's unclean. What does that mean? Sounds kind of like a bad thing. Um, why would this, this good thing of birth make her unclean? And so we need to wrestle with that. What does it mean to be unclean or anyway? It, it uh, sounds like dirty. Is, is what, it, what does that mean and, and what does it imply? Uh, and so you can get many different translations, unclean, impure, defiled. Uh, all of these often strike us as having this negative connotation. And so what, what, what is happening here? Uh, and so in order to appreciate these ceremonial laws, we need to look at this law of the new mother closely and, and in light of what we can find elsewhere in Leviticus and what God was teaching. And so we'll see how it worked, and then we'll go into a little bit more on how it, uh, what it taught. Uh, and so it's part of a larger system. And we need to keep that in mind as we read it. We can't just read this law 
alone as itself. We need to read it in light of other things that it alludes to or that are round about it. But as we, as we think on it, we can note a few things. And if you, if you notice both from the reading in Leviticus 12 and then in Leviticus 15, uncleanness has an outward focus, we could say. The focus is on how the new mother affects other people or things, what she touches, her bed, um, or other persons. Uh, and, and so we could contrast that with sickness. When we think of a sickness, it's mainly about how we feel. Uh, when you have a fever, you don't feel so good. When you have a cold, you don't feel so good. You have all these physical symptoms. You may be worrying about spreading it. Uh, we've had that much too often here in our pandemic and other things. But it's mainly that you want to recover so that you feel better. Uh, well, with uncleanness, you don't feel anything. You don't feel uncleanness. There are no symptoms to that. It's not something in that sense that that affects you, but it's how you then interact with the world around. Will you make others unclean? And most importantly, as we'll see, will you make the tabernacle or what is holy unclean? Now, the second thing we could say is we can see in our text that there's also these different levels of uncleanness with different effects. Um, and so the, the text, as it speaks of what's happened for a if it's a boy that's born, if it's a girl that's born, for both of them there's some initial period. Uh, and it says that in that initial period she'll be unclean at the time of her menstruation or time of the month. And so then we read of that in Leviticus chapter 15 and saw more of what was involved with that. But then it says that period will come to an end. And then she'll also still be unclean, but at what we could say is this lower level for another 33 days for a boy or 66 for a girl. Um, and so we could look at other laws, but what, what we find here is, is there are higher levels in purity and lower levels in purity, and there's different effects because of that. That initially she had this higher level that made it so that she would make pretty much anything she came in contact with unclean. As we read in Leviticus 15, the bed she sat on became unclean. If you touched that bed, you became unclean, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so it was this, this higher level impurity that made those things around her, right? As we said, that outward focus, it made them unclean. And so she, she was contagious in this sense, though not with sickness, but with this impurity, this uncleanness. And we could look at other laws and find out that the new mother didn't even have the most serious, highest level, um, because if you were a leper or if there was a dead body, you could become unclean just by being in the same room, um, not even by touch. Uh, but then she had this other time, these these uh, 33 days or 66 days, when she was unclean. And note what it what it says there. 
Um, and, uh, and so this is um, uh, verse 4. And then she shall, for a boy, then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary. So now it's not whether she affects other people. She's not going to make them unclean. Now it's focused just on one thing. The sanctuary or what is holy. Uh, and so for that first period, she had to be mindful of other people touching them. Uh, what uh, And if they became unclean, then they need to be mindful that they were unclean. Uh, but in this period, all she needed to worry about was approaching God in his house. Going to the tabernacle. She was not allowed to do that. She was not allowed to make that approach. And anything holy, which mainly would have been the offerings. She couldn't partake of the sacrifices. Uh, She couldn't have lamb chops until her time of purification. And so this, this really brings up then our third thing we should think about this. It has that outward focus. There's these different levels, but ultimately they are all focused and worried about God and his house and what is holy. The tabernacle was holy. The sacrifices were holy. And that was the concern. That was what was prohibited. As someone unclean, as someone defiled, as someone impure, you could not approach God's house and thereby defile it. You couldn't approach his offerings and thereby defile them. You could touch other people and they could become unclean, but that wasn't prohibited. They then needed to be careful. Before they would go to the tabernacle, before they would approach, they needed to uh, abide by what was required to make themselves clean. But what was prohibited was defiling God in his holiness, God's house, God's things, what was holy. Uh, And so with these two levels... um, and with this new mother and, and all of this, uh, we see this culmination in, in what our law leads up to. What is it building to? She has these two periods, as we said, this time when she's impure as during her menstruation, this longer time uh, when it is this lesser impurity. But at the end, what does she get to do? She finally gets to come to the tabernacle. She finally gets this goal, this culmination of what the law is bringing about, a restoration of the new mother into this proximity, this fellowship with God at his house and with his offerings. Uh, And so she is required to bring this offering that she needs there. And so there in verse Six And when the days of her purifying are complete, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, uh, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. 
And then notice what happens. And she shall offer it before the Lord, and uh, the priest will do that, and he will make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. She can now come into God's presence, into his house, into uh, and partake of his offerings. And then it goes on and says if she's too poor, then she can just bring two to uh to birds. And that's what we see in the text we read from the New Testament. Joseph and Mary, they were poor. And so Luke there as he records it, he's actually speaking of two laws that are being kept. The first is Jesus is the firstborn, and so there's a law for the firstborn that needs to be kept. But then he writes um, this is also for purification and he says the law that says a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What they would have brought as this poor couple to the Lord so that now Mary was clean. And Mary could come before God in her, in his house. Mary could partake in his offerings. She could be with him in that. And I think we can really see in that how much Jesus was born under the law, as the text says. He came as one under the law. His mother needed to keep the law, and Jesus would be the one who would fully do that, keeping it for us. But what does this teach us? We've gotten some of the general outlines of what this impurity was. What uh, what does this law teach us? Why did childbirth, as we said, something commanded by God, be fruitful and multiply, something good, something blessed? Why in the world does it make her unclean, and why does she need to bring a sin offering? Now, as a, as a side note, the rabbis are always interesting. And uh, they picked up on the sin offering, and they tried to explain why. Uh, at least one did. They suggested an answer. Um, one rabbi said that the new mother needed to bring a sin offering to atone for any rash statements she made during the pains of childbirth. Um, so we don't have to quite go with the rabbis there. Now, what's important is that when she brought this offering, what did it lead to? as we read in the text, it led to her being clean. We find later in chapter 4 where you need to bring a sin offering because you've sinned, and there it leads to you being forgiven. The new mother didn't need to be forgiven of anything. She needed to be clean. She needed to be restored to this uh, state in which she could come before God. And so we should should emphasize that. Uh, impurity, uncleanness in Israel, it wasn't sinful. It wasn't caused by something sinful. Uh, and and as we as we think of that, this mother, as we said, she doesn't need to be forgiven. She needs to be made clean. Uh, and so that's why many have even called this not a sin offering, but a purification offering. That is what it's accomplishing. It's bringing about her purity. Now, 
We'll come back a little bit later to a relationship between sin and uncleanness because there is something going on there in the biblical text. But uncleanness, as we said, isn't sinful. It doesn't result from a sinful action. In Israel, there were many things in your ordinary life that would make you unclean. We have here the new mother. Uh, Every Israelite woman in a marriage who had children, she would be unclean through that. But if you touched a dead animal, you were unclean. And so as an Israelite farmer, this would be an experience that would be part of your everyday life. And if you went to a funeral, we said a dead body would make you unclean just by being in the same building, in the same room. And so you would become unclean as you would go and mourn your relatives, your friends, those round about you. And maybe most shocking, even the marriage bed made you unclean. And so as we think of on that, every Israelite would have had either minor impurities, those lesser ones, or these more major ones, weekly, if not more often than that. And so when we, when we hear this language of impurity and uncleanness, our natural inclination is to think it's something to be avoided. It's a bad thing. But when we read these laws, we realize that it can't be avoided. Uh, it can't be something that an Israelite was seeking to get away from. And as we read them, we said that it wasn't prohibited as far as it goes to other people. Uh, It was only prohibited as far as the tabernacle and the things that were holy. Uh, And so Israel, they, they were not to avoid it. They couldn't avoid it. In fact, keeping God's law meant they would become unclean, but they needed to be aware of it. They needed to think about it. They needed to plan for it. Because when they became unclean, then they needed to know what it was that God required of them so that they would become clean again. And so they needed to be aware and take the proper steps to deal with it, lest they come in contact with God's holy house, his holy offerings. And this is where we can we could deal with later New Testament times where the Pharisees distort these things and they make it this sign of righteousness, of avoiding uh, impurity as all at all whenever possible. Now, we could qualify that there were particular forms of impurity that Israel was prohibited from. We said, first of all, they can't approach what's holy. Um, but uh, there were also other things such as eating of unclean animals that that uh, they were not to do, or for different people there were some different laws. The priests, they had special laws on when they could become unpure, going to funerals and other things. And so Israel needed to be careful in that. God had set out these rules. He had said what was allowed, what was prohibited, and how they needed to be aware of it, and how they needed to deal with it. And as we put these things together, what does it really mean? Well, 
In short, they are all dealing with God's presence amongst Israel. As we said in our text, that's that central focus, how the new mother relates to the sanctuary, to what's offered there in those offerings, uh, in what she was doing. And all of these laws, therefore, we could say, were so that an Israelite was always thinking about God's presence. That he was always thinking about God was there in the tabernacle, in the midst of him, in the midst of his land, in the midst of the camp. And so they needed to act appropriately. God was there, and so they needed to be careful. What did I touch? What am I eating? What am I doing? All of that is reminding them that they are in God's presence. These laws, they make an awareness of God's presence in the tabernacle for Israel. And in that, they also emphasize the God who is there and his holiness. He needs to be approached in a distinct way. He needs to be treated in the right way. It emphasizes his holiness. He is God, not man. And so they must treat him and come before him rightly, or there would be dire consequences. God was holy, and these purity laws emphasize that. You don't just stumble into the tabernacle. You want to be prepared. Or you could die. And Leviticus 15, at the end of all of these laws, it summarizes this purpose as it says, as it's commanding here, Moses, as he's revealing with Israel, he says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So just like those stories, these laws, they would have this great teaching function, this teaching function for Israel and certainly the children as they're asking, Daddy, why why do I have to wash? Why do we have to wash our bodies and our clothes when I touch this dead animal? Why does Mommy have to bring this sacrifice after giving birth to my baby sister? It's because God dwells amongst us, in that tabernacle, and he is holy. And we we love to explore more specifics. Why did God choose these particular things to teach this? These particular activities, why menstruation, why giving birth? Um, it's difficult to know because the text doesn't give us as much. In one sense, we could we could tie it to this sense of incompatibility. As we said, this is the great king who is there in his house. And so you have to come in a proper state. If you're meeting with the president, whether you like him or not, you're probably not going to go sweaty and dirty after just playing a football game. You maybe want to dress up. You want to have some proper decorum. To treat with respect. Well, how much more 
God in what's in many ways his palace there, his temple, his tabernacle. Uh, and so as we, as we think on that, that, uh, that teaching, um, that instruction of keeping this before Israel, God is there in his house and he needs to be treated properly. He needs to be separated. Uh, but as we as we think on this on this system, uh, and as we now relate it in one sense, because the text does relate it to sin, um, we we see that there is a teaching, what we could say by analogy, of what we have. Uh, this impurity, this uncleanness, it did separate you from God, in a sense. Uh, now, it wasn't that God was angry, as we said. Uh, it wasn't that they had done anything wrong. Uh, as we said, there wasn't this need for forgiveness. But there was this separation. They wanted to be in God's house, to be there in fellowship with him that focal point of his presence. And so the impurity system is this analogy of what sin does. Sin as it separates from God, though now in a different way, as it does alienate, it is this relationship issue. Uh, and so the, uh, the Bible picks this up as it uses this language of uncleanness as this metaphor for sin. How we are separated from him because of it. And so Ezekiel is one example. Ezekiel 36, 17 says, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Now, did God hate women in their menstrual impurity? No. He said that's not what it was. But that menstrual impurity, it, as we said, made them unclean so that they were separated from the sanctuary. There was this incompatibility lest they die. And so that imagery of what it would be like for the woman to go into God's presence in the temple in her menstrual impurity that incompatibility that's used here as this metaphor for what sin, how it separates, how it is this incompatibility with God and his ways. But we also find that the biblical text uses the imagery of how people are restored from impurity to again think of sin and dealing with sin. And David in Psalm 51 is a great example of this. Psalm 51, as it has in its superscription, uh, dealing with the sin of adultery, murder. And as he puts that before God, he says, wash me. And the term there really is, is what they did to their clothes. Launder me. When I become unclean, I need to wash my body. I need to wash my clothes so then I can come again. Well, now because of my sin, do that same thing, but now dealing not with this physical impurity, but with sin. 
Launder me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me, remove this, this uncleanness with hyssop and I shall be clean like, as we said, that new mother. Wash me, launder me again and I will be whiter than snow. And so thus, the purity system taught Israel by analogy about their sinful condition. Everybody had it. All the time. Everybody's sinful. And not only that, it also taught them that God, God could provide a way. God could provide that restoration. He could bring that one who is estranged near. And so just as the new mother was able to bring her offering her sacrifice to God and thus again be reconciled, enter into God's presence at the tabernacle, God provided a sacrifice that allowed the sinner to be reconciled to God. And that, dear people of God, is the good news. That is the gospel as it's taught to us, shown to us through this purity system. We find thus in the New Testament this language of cleansing is used of Christ's blood. This language of the purity system and Christ's death is used to show what Christ has done for us. And so one common text that's, that's uh, used as that assurance of, of pardon, we get in 1 John 1, seven. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And Hebrews is the one who brings it out the most. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, as it looks back and says, don't go back to that. All of that was looking forward. Uh, and so Hebrews chapter 9, 13 through 14 it shows this teaching by analogy. It says, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a red heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, right? if the new mother could be purified by these offerings, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, How much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so just as the new mother needed to look to the cleansing that God provided, the washings, the sacrifices that would allow her to again enter into God's presence, we need to look to Christ, to his sacrifice, the washings by his blood for us to be reconciled to God. But unlike that new mother, we don't go now to a physical building, a tabernacle, a temple. One of the oddities, one of the strange things, or the great things that we find in the New Testament is that we ourselves are that body. As we are built up, the church, to be part of Christ's body, and and we have by that this even greater reminder. Israel, as we said by this purity system, was being reminded that God was present amongst them in that tabernacle. May we always be reminded that God is present in us as we are 
this tabernacle, temple of God, built up, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so as we close, God gave us laws. Even these ceremonial laws about purity to teach us, to teach us about himself and his love for us, shown in that work of Christ. Israel lived them out. We do not anymore, but we can still learn from them. Our children can still learn from them. Let us pray.